We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events, and we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is zero, in which case, ouch. But okay, if you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more, more importantly, thank you for listening. From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Deborah Neary, who is running for re-election to the Nebraska State Board of Education. I always like to tell people the story of my sister, who has an intellectual disability. Through all the vocational rehab training and programs that we were able to get her into, she worked in the kitchen at the med center 40 years was a tax-paying citizen, and it's like, that's what we want. We want every student to feel productive and to be contributing to our state. And if education, public education is done the right way, we can do that, and our state will be so much better off in the long run. Neri discusses her experience with Nebraska schools, what's working, and what her vision is to ensure a stable future. Later in the show, Jared Charles from the Borough Reviews is going to talk about David Gordon Green's Halloween series, which just released its final installment, Halloween Ends. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Last year, a petition circulated which would replace the Nebraska State Board of Education, Education Commissioner, and Nebraska Department of Education with a new Office of Education accountable directly to the governor. It didn't pass, but it's not the first time this idea has been floated here, and such proposals have passed in states like Oregon. But what is the Nebraska State Board of Education? Who's on it? What do they do? Today, Deborah Neary is here to tell her story, explain what the board is, how education works, and her vision for how to keep it stable going forward if she's re-elected to her seat this November. Here is our conversation. Public schools come up a lot in the culture war right now, and it looks like there's serious proposals to potentially defund them or at least seriously reshape them. How alarmed should people be, uh, the people who like the public schools, who are happy with what the public schools provide to our community? How worried should they be right now? Well, first of all, thank you for spending so much time talking about our public schools. Uh, They are so key to everything, Uh, our state's future, uh, you know, our grandchildren, our children, uh, for everyone to be successful. But I don't want to sound alarmist, but I'll just say (laughs) I'm a little worried about our public schools right now. Why? What are you worried about? So being on the State Board of Education for the last four years, I've really seen the attacks on our public schools and efforts to defund so we can make them look bad and then ultimately privatize them. Right now, though, as of last Friday, our education commissioner uh, for the state of Nebraska has resigned. And that's normal for someone, you know, and after 10 years, it, you know, that's a normal turnover. And I know a lot of people are leaving earlier because the pandemic just, you know, has caused 
people to really be stretched and they're exhausted. Um, but it turns the elections right now for the State Board of Education into who now is going to be making the decision about our next education commissioner, which is in, going to impact uh, Nebraska education for the next 10 years and really impact the direction of our public schools. My guess is there are a lot of people who have never really thought about the commissioner as a role and don't really understand what it is, what that means. So what, what, what's that job description? You know, I compare it to no one ever knew that we even had a, a national <laughs> counterpart, you know, uh, education leader for the state until Betsy DeVos came in office. And so that's what we're looking at. The education commissioner and the state board of education make a lot of policy decisions that are impact the state of Nebraska. Now, we in the state have a lot of local control, too. There is the perfect balance in Nebraska. We have at the state level with the commissioner and the board standardized uh, uh, guidelines, uh, requirements. And I'll give you an example of why that's important. Like when we were working on science standards, we had a lot of local people that did not want us teaching climate change in our science standards. They wanted us to have creationism in our science standards. And that would be for our public schools. And so you have to have like a statewide you know, standard that uses experts, listens to parents, but really uses experts, look at what's the national trends. And then in Nebraska, once the state standards are set for science, and we did include climate change, then we have the local school boards decide what textbooks are we going to use and what curriculum goals are we going to use based on those standards. That kind of balance is important because if we only have half the state learning at a national level and being competitive at a national level when they graduate, I mean, that is going to hurt everybody. And so that balance is really important. And the commissioner is key to all of that. So you've been on the board as someone who's been who served a term on it. How have things been changing over the course of your first term? Oh, that's an easy one because four years ago when I ran um, and then started serving, it was there was no talk about politics or political parties. I mean, it's a nonpartisan position. And in my whole term on the board, I never knew what anyone's political party was. And it wasn't obvious until we had somebody recently appointed by the governor and all of his talking points are political. They aren't about what's going to be the best for the youth of Nebraska, what's going to make them more competitive, how are we going to support all youth. It's the political rhetoric and fear that is happening across our country, but that extremism is really happening here. And it just, for the first time, kind of filtered into the state board work, which makes me mad, or not mad, I'm sorry, it makes me sad, uh, because th there's so much important work to be done. We shouldn't be talking about political talking points. Well, and the, the talking points, to some extent, seem to me uh, to be part of a move against public schools as a concept, right? It's kind of a move to whether it's to reshape 
or to oftentimes it's sort of bundled with this idea that we want money to go toward uh, charter schools or uh, go to uh, to essentially to, to change it so we reshape the idea of where money is going, whether that's to public schools directly or whether it's to some kind of privatized version of schools. Um, and one of the ways that you can make that work is to sort of shrink the current system. And it's under this idea of school choice. So, I mean, like, I guess what, what I'm asking really is in this shift that you're seeing, is it an attack on public schools or a, a change to the, the values of public schools towards something more partisan because of just sort of an ideological disagreement or is it bundled with kind of a larger plan? That's a great question. And I'll say most voters don't understand the issues and the impact. I mean, everyone wants school choice. And most voters don't understand that Nebraska's laws are a little bit different than many other states. And we have option enrollment, and we already have a lot of choice here. Uh, we have a lot of flexibility in the way our laws are written, that a lot of the innovation that people think charter schools bring can be done here in Nebraska. And some great examples like the Wilson Fo Focus School or the Zoo School that we have. Or, I mean, there's some great examples of what can be done. But there's a political agenda to privatize schools and defund them, you know, chipping away and making leadership policy decisions that just make it harder for schools. Um, you know, I'll, I'll use an example of the praxis, which, you know, our state legislature, every teacher in the, in the state, every university person, superintendents, everybody knows that we need to get rid of the praxis as a requirement for teachers. It's one of the things that we can do to help solve this teacher shortage. It's a bias test and it's and so much time and money is wasted. There's so many ways we can measure a teacher's competence without this test. It passed the legislature that we should get rid of it, and the governor wouldn't sign it. And there was no reason. I mean, at, you know, our partisan state legislature all understood why it needed to go. But if your goal is to chip away a little at a time at our public schools and make them uh, not as great as they can be, then that's that's an example of a decision, you know, and it's a little at a time. Yeah, it's interesting to me that uh, among certain elected officials in Nebraska on the right, there's this dance between saying that public services should be defunded in the case of public education or they should be maybe like refunded in certain ways or like the arts or whether public health care comes up. It's sort of like, well, we can't fund that. That's ridiculous. But at the same time, there's this like there's no short shortage of moral outrage if you suggest defunding the military or the police. And uh, maybe my generous interpretation here would be that there's sort of this inherent pride in public institutions in the case of military, but there's not that pride for public education, which is why it seems fine to chip away at it or to propose chipping away at it in these big measures, right? Why, why do you think there's that dissonance in the pride for some public institutions but not for schools? I have the pride in schools, so I don't understand that way of thinking. I think that strong schools are going to make for a strong future economy for our state. Our public schools can't discriminate, and we can't afford I, – I mean, many people don't realize it, but like most of the Catholic high schools in Omaha, if you have an IEP, you're a student, then they won't take you. You know what I mean? It's There's a lot of ways – and I don't – no one likes that word discriminate, but, but, but a lot of our non-public schools have rules that are not welcoming to all students. 
our public schools can't. And we want everyone to be successful. I always like to tell people the story of my sister who has an intellectual disability, has an IQ of 57. She could have been on welfare her entire life because of her disability. But instead, through all the vocational rehab training and programs that we were able to get her into, she worked in the kitchen at the med center her entire career, uh, retired after 40 years, was a tax-paying citizen instead of being on the tax rolls for the state. And it's like, that's what we want. We want every student to feel uh, productive and to be contributing to our state. And if education, public education is done the right way, we can do that and our state will be so much better off in the, in the long run. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Deborah Neary, who is running for re-election to the Nebraska State Board of Education. What's your experience in Nebraska schools? What's being done right? What changes would you like to see? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. So what do you say to people who uh, maybe are struggling with the idea of what it is that's so important about public education? Like one thing I hear sometimes is, I don't have kids in public school. Why do I have to pay my taxes toward it? And another way of looking at it would be it's some kind of investment, right, for the whole country of anyone who pays taxes to contribute to the public school system. So let's just get really broad. Why is it really important to have public schools? Well, we all are going to be using uh, in our lives those students of our public schools. Our doctors are, you know, the people that make our laws, the people that, uh, I mean, every occupation, you know, uh, is going to be heavily uh, populated by people that went to public schools. It's touches every part of our lives. And just like we pay for streets that we may not drive in, drive on, or, you know, a library that we may not use, I mean, there is a risk. We pay taxes for the greater good. And public schools are part of that greater good that ultimately help us also. And so did you go to public schools here? I went to Catholic schools all the way through, and I did send my foster, one of my foster daughters to, uh, we love the public school she was in, but she had had so much trauma in her life that a smaller private school uh, we ended up sending her to. I've also been on the board of a private Catholic school and uh, really believe in uh, lifting up all of these uh, ways of education. But our public schools at the end of the day are, you know, not able to discriminate. They need to be welcoming everyone. Uh, we need to make sure that they are equipped and resourced uh, in a way that they can for the greater good. So maybe let's do kind of the opposite of what the news tends to focus on. What's good about our schools right now? What are the things you're proud of that are working? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So I bet not very many Nebraskans know this, but Nebraska is rated ninth in the country for one of the best public educations in the country. Ninth. And there's, I could spend two days talking about assessments because there is so much misinformation around assessments. I won't promise <laughs> I'll make it short, but, but what you need to know is there's no apples to apples assessments that happen between, I mean, our, our private schools don't take the same assessments as our public schools. Our ACTs even, you can't even compare those because ACTs 
are only taken by every single student in the state in 15 states. You know what I mean? And so when every student is taking it, it certainly lowers the average, if you understand what I'm saying. So there's one test. It's called the NAEP. It uh, comes out every two years. And this is the same questions for every student across the country. So we really know how our schools are doing. And we were rated ninth in the country the last time those scores came out. Now, they're going to be coming out again here in the next few weeks. The national scores just came out. And again, these were tests that were uh, taken during the pandemic or towards the end of the pandemic. And so, you know, everybody expected learning loss. There was no way that could be avoided. And that's what our national tests are showing, is that there was learning loss across the country. And so soon we'll find out, you know, did Nebraska stay ninth in the country, even with a learning loss? And uh, that's a, a question I'm really looking forward to knowing the answer. But regardless, we have some amazing schools here that I'm very proud of. How did we get to be ninth? What, what are they doing that puts us up so high? Well, what's interesting is, we're not giving funding to our public schools because even though we're rated ninth, we are actually 49th in the country or close to it. Uh, that statistic may have changed in the last year. But the last I heard, as far as state funding that goes into public education, 49th out of 50 schools uh, are states in the country. And so a lot of our funding comes from property taxes, which we obviously need to have some discussions about uh, and fix. And also the way we use our federal dollars are really important uh, to having strong schools. I think we have amazing teachers, and I, I want us to continue to have amazing teachers in Nebraska, and I want to make sure that uh, we support our teachers, and so there's a lot uh, at stake in November for making sure that we, you know, have uh, policy leaders that respect and appreciate our teachers that aren't calling them groomers and indoctrinators, but instead know how hard they're working. Well, so that I mean, that's a big issue that to me doesn't seem to have uh, a really obvious answer uh, because. For someone to become a teacher right now, you're sort of expecting them to become a scapegoat in the culture war. And oftentimes, teachers are not really allowed to talk about their experience outside of to their direct supervisor. So it's not like there's a dialogue that's happening, right? It's sort of like you get to be called names and you don't get to say anything or justify what you're doing or just say that I'm not doing the thing that they're saying I'm doing, right? And they're doing that for often very low pay. So, I mean, what, what is the argument that people should be teachers in Nebraska or stay as teachers at all? Yeah. <laughs> Teachers are doing it uh, for all the right reasons. I mean, most all of our teachers are amazing humans that are doing it because they really care about kids and they care about, uh, you know, doing it right so that uh, these kids, all kids, have a bright future. I understand that, uh, yeah, why would we want to? <laughs> uh you know, uh, tell teachers or recruit teachers into this field. But I am optimistic and feel like it's changing, that there is an awareness now. There is not. I mean, there are voices out there saying our teachers are indoctrinators, and they're doing that just to get elected to office and putting fear tactics out there. But there's more people like me, I believe, that really understand the needs of our teachers, 
are working very hard to make sure that we're looking at ways that we can make it better for teachers. Teachers are taking on all the social problems of our world, and they need help doing it. And so I've been a part of a lot of discussions that include all sectors of our education community from, you know, the universities to the teachers to superintendents to, you know, parents to, I mean, everybody that um, needs to help solve this issue that you're talking about. And I'm feeling optimistic that those conversations are finally happening. So, I mean, do you feel like there are some clear steps that can be taken to uh, achieve more teacher retention or get new people into the field? Yes. Uh, at our last board meeting, we did have a discussion. There are There's a clear plan for what needs to happen in order to everything from you know, uh, sharing uh, certification uh, transfers with neighboring states to, um, you know, impacting how we use uh, paras and support them and how we use uh, student teachers and making it more uh, interesting uh, and enticing for them to want to go on to become teachers. Uh, there's a lot of ideas out there. Uh, that are starting to be put into action. Now, the conventional wisdom on that, though, is to make it a competitive field, you have to pay more, right? Yes. And that's part of the discussion, too. I'll say our State Board of Education uh, had some heated discussions when we were passing out ARPA money uh, to schools and uh, required an increase in what was being recommended at first, an increase for support for teachers than was out there. And schools were given money to use the support for teachers. Some gave bonuses. Some did other things. Um, we left it up to the school districts to be discretionary. Uh, but teacher pay is definitely something that needs to be on the table. Now, I know another issue on your site of your platform of the key issues of your campaign is brain drain. And this has come up a lot on this show. And I I don't know that there's an obvious answer for a lot of it. But I am curious, how can schools combat brain drain? You know, they're doing it. I, there's a lot of uh, incentive work and recognition work and appreciation work that is happening in our school districts now. And they do have a little bit of federal f money to do that. You know, no, understanding the mental health needs of, you know, our teachers after they've been through the, you know, very traumatic uh, last couple of years uh, and putting supports in place for that. I think our school districts are stepping up. Maybe uh, we can do it faster and consider, you know, the uh, compensation piece. Uh, there's a lot that is happening right now, though. Well, and as far as an, an issue that's come up over and over and over again over the last decade, uh, sex ed is sort of always one of the big hot button issues. So can you just clarify, what, what exactly is the fight over sex ed right now in Nebraska and how should it be handled? You know, I've never understood other than it's political. Uh, intentionally, um, our uh, governor has tried to fan flames of a problem that doesn't really exist. Almost all of our Omaha public schools already have sex ed, most of our Catholic schools have sex ed. And so, and no one, uh, the draft that was being looked at 
uh, was never going to, one, be passed. We always do two or three drafts, you know, in order to get it right, get input in. And we're never going to be mandatory for any school district anywhere in the state. And so, and every parent, you know, has uh, opt-in, opt-out opportunities right now about whether their child should be in sex ed. And from my understanding is very few parents opt out, uh, is my understanding. But there really wasn't an issue because, as I said, kids are already learning this stuff, you know, and uh, at age appropriate, grade appropriate. And so really what's out there is a lot of fear mongering. And uh, again, it's part of, you know, if we can have fearful parents voting for these extremist ideas, then ultimately we can defund our schools. And I don't think those parents know that that's what the end game is, you know, for some of these political discussions. And and so uh, I, I'm glad for this opportunity to explain this, that you know, there there isn't an issue. There are real issues that we need to be talking about. Uh, opportunity gaps. You know, I mean, there's a lot out there, but sex ed isn't one of them because it's already here in Omaha. All right, let's talk about some real issues then. Tell me about opportunity gaps. You know, opportunity gaps. It, it's funny because everybody says they want everybody. We want to close these, you know, achievement gaps, opportunity gaps. But then when you talk about the real solutions, people are afraid of those solutions. I mean, when it's about having schools that embrace and make every student feel welcome. I mean, these sound like just simple common sense ideas. But because of my nonprofit leadership work, I've been working, you know, on research uh, activities for the last 10 years on positive youth development strategies. And uh, we employed all that in the way of mentoring. And so we know that uh, school environments that are welcoming somebody in the school that just notices a youth, you know, and it doesn't just have to be the teacher. I mean, I helped roll out all sorts of programs across the state in a Nebraska, where we use the janitor or, you know, the front desk receptionist or somebody to help, you know, just give a positive touch to some of these kids who are struggling a little bit more or had chronic absentee issues. Uh, You know, kids can't succeed if they're not in school, and chronic absenteeism is one of those issues. But again, it's being welcoming, getting rid of bullying from our schools, reducing teen pregnancy is really important if we want kids to be successful and graduate high school and, and be able to go on to career development. I mean, these are conversations. And then right now, after the pandemic, one of the most important is you know, the emotional development and the mental health of our students right now. I mean, there's there's very low-cost preventative strategies that we can use to help kids kind of self-regulate. But we need to talk about those things. And some people want to politicize social-emotional learning and make it sound like it's something scary or they they are afraid of CRT and they don't want us even talking about an accurate uh, depiction of American history. I mean, my master's is in, Ameri- is in American history, and it's like, you know, I mean, I, uh, I, 
it just makes me sad that anyone would think of wanting to whitewash our history. It's like we all know that if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. And so there's a lot of issues that we need to be talking about that aren't sex ed. I'm talking with Deborah Neary, who is running for re-election to the Nebraska State Board of Education. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can check out the backlog of all the Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you're listening on. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review. Today I'm talking with Deborah Neary, who is currently running for re-election to the Nebraska State Board of Education. Later in the show, Jared Charles from the Borough Reviews is here to talk about David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy. Here is the rest of our conversation. Okay, well, one of the ones you said in there was uh, stopping bullying. How do you, how do you do that? Well, uh, we teach respect for every student, and as you probably know, that was the piece in the health standards that was the most controversial. Um, nobody wanted to indoctrinate. Nobody wants to groom. Uh, teachers want kids to be successful, and we have a lot of students in our schools uh, that um, aren't feeling welcome because there is so much misunderstanding around LGBTQ students, and uh, we need to, we need, I wish we could educate our parents first because I know young people don't have any issues. You know what I mean? They all know someone in their school who might be LGBT or Q and, um, and to them it's not an issue. And it doesn't, just because they see someone doesn't make them want to become that. You know, it's just respect for every human being. And, uh, but because some of our political officials have, you know, tried to make it sound fearful or, you know, used examples of something off the internet that may or may not have happened in California or, you know, I mean, there's just so much fear around these ideas and uh, and we need to do better. Yeah, you make me think of uh, Senator Bosselman uh, <laughs> seeing a Facebook post about kids using litter boxes at school because they identify as cats. And he's talking about this in the legislature. You know, because a Facebook group told him it happened. And as far as your point that we just get so lost in noise instead of even talking about issues that are even happening in schools. It's just sort of this made up thing I saw on the Internet. It's really a bad way to have any conversation about how to have a successful education system. Well, and that's it. Where are people getting their information? It's my opponent listed her community service as two Facebook groups that she's a part of. I have spent my whole life in leadership roles working my tail off on, you know, in community service activities. The governor has even appointed me twice to a statewide position. I mean, I, I understand leadership and what it takes. And Facebook isn't where I think anyone learns leadership or 
facts about anything. I mean, we need people in our education offices, not just on the state board, but our local boards too, who understand these issues and aren't just, you know, playing politics for their own benefit so that they can get on a board and then go on and do whatever next office they want to do. There's too much at stake right now. So what were some of your community service experiences and what were they helpful for as far as your current position? Well, I was on the board of Madonna School, which um, I have a sister, as I mentioned, with an intellectual disability, and that is a school that serves uh, children with autism and intellectual disabilities. And uh, I serve Nebraska board. I've been on my Rotary board. I've been in Rotary for 20 years. I was uh, active in League of Women Voters for 20 years. I've been a mentor to, I can't even tell you how many. I've had eight foster kids. Um, you know, it's, uh, oh my gosh, the list is pretty long. I'll tell you, I can't even think of all, oh, Leadership Nebraska, Leadership Omaha. I, you know, I've just, uh, these are all ways that I have honed my knowledge about our education system and how to work as a leader because it isn't what I want. It's about what does the elected officials working with me want along with our commissioner and how do we work together as a team in order to bring to success for every student in Nebraska. So when you're working with people who probably have a different you know, life story, different life worldviews to some extent, how do you find that it's effective to communicate uh, when you're on the board talking about what education should look like in Nebraska? I'll tell you that one of my favorite people that I love talking to on our board is somebody who... Uh, is very opposite me on a lot of views. We started on the board at the same time. He's from Western Nebraska. He's very conservative. He's a different political party than me. He really, uh, you know, he's more rural. I'm more urban. I mean, we just understand issues from different perspectives, but I love that he and I are willing to have the conversations and we always end up in the middle. And that's what we need for Nebraska, people that are willing to talk through the solutions and and figure out what, you know, instead of like attacking each other and fighting each other, like we need to bring our perspectives bring the information from, you know, our lenses and then have those discussions. Well, so to have a discussion then here about uh, an issue that I think feels a lot more real than like litter box concerns, uh, the not every student goes to college. Not every student wants to go to college. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all kinds of different opportunities for kids who don't go to college. I don't know that it's always clear what schools can offer those students, right? So as far as students interested in non-college track, what can Nebraska do for them? And we are doing that. I mean, we have a lot of federal money that we use for vocational, uh, you know, opportunities. There's also some federal requirements that we have to do that here. Sadly, the state of Nebraska doesn't put any money into that, which in most states they do. We are using all federal money for that. But a lot, I'll say a lot, we support our high schools and they're doing very innovative things with the funding that we provide. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of hands-on learning for a lot of trades and vocations and, and career exploration that is very innovative and inspiring to me because not everyone should go to college or needs to go to college or wants to go to college. And there's a lot of high-paying jobs out there. Uh, you know, sometimes they're higher-paying jobs, you know, uh, without all the hassle of a four-year degree. So, like, what some of those programs would be, what, internships or what does it look like? 
Well, you know, in Ralston Public Schools, you have hands-on learning on how to fix cars and do auto repair and, you know, all sorts of work. I mean, it's it's that hands-on learning. Metro Community College is providing some opportunities, too, that high school students are able to access. Uh, it's really letting kids have a window into careers that they may never have considered. I remember interviewing, uh, doing mock interviews with some high school students that wanted to practice applying for a job. And I would ask them, well, what do you see yourself doing in 10 years? And, and their answers were what they had seen in their life. I want to be a McDonald's manager. I want to be a social worker. I want to be, I mean, it was, these were some students that came from a lower economic background and it was pretty limited, the types of careers they were seeing. And so, you know, that explore, that career exploration and letting kids, you know, just see all of the different opportunities that are out there that they can do. Uh, I mean, I think that's very exciting. What are some of the other big changes you'd like to see in Nebraska education in the next few years? I, you know, we we have to fix the teacher shortage. I mean, that's probably the biggest priority. Uh, and, you know, I, I just think strengthening our public schools, uh, it doesn't mean more money. Uh, it does mean making sure that we're making policies that are smart policies. You know, when uh, where we recognize the needs of every student in our state. And we have policies that will help every student reach their full potential. You know, we want our high achieving students to reach their full potential for sure. But if we can help every student do that, then our our whole state wins. So like, what, is, what are some of the examples, though? Like, what would be smart policies? Well, I, I think that... Um, there were some state legislature uh, bills that, you know, they wanted us to teach only Americanism or a whitewashed version of American history. I, I think that doesn't help us as a state uh, to uh, not understand our history, you know, and understand all the important groups that have made up our history. I, that's part of it. I think that you know, to uh, acknowledge that uh, we have racism in our state and that it is impacted in the classroom sometimes. And we need to understand that and so that we can uh, make sure that our classrooms are welcoming to everyone. An example of that is like, if you're a person of color and you don't see a person of color in the textbook you're reading or, you know, in in the, the history that you're learning about or, you know, any of your teachers or, I mean, that impacts you. It's like, we know from research that kids need to see themselves in these stories, in their classrooms. And, and so understanding just you know, the needs of individual students. And there's low-cost ways we can accomplish these things, but we need to understand them first. Yeah, well, so it sounds like uh, the critical race theory arguments, I don't know, I, I've generally chalked that up to being a lot of noise as well, particularly when I try to, when I see uh, Governor Ricketts try to define it, it tends to be a lot of words that are sort of like, well, it teaches people to, you know, uh, you know, well, it, it says socialism and they don't like America. You know, it's like this kind of rambling thing where, 
I don't feel like there's often a conversation that's happening where here's the thing that I'm genuinely worried about or here's the thing I find concerning because it's easier to have an actual productive conversation of like these are the topics that bother me. But it's kind of just sort of like a boogeyman word I think a lot of the time. And to fight this boogeyman that can be whatever somebody wants it to be depending on the context of a conversation is sort of a, a there's no there's a no win sort of element for you trying to defend the schools in that sense, right? So I mean like well, I guess what's your take on the current state of the the critical race theory, uh, sort of, uh, I don't know if it's anger or whatever, the controversy, let's say. But you're right. It is a boogeyman that no one understands uh, because, I mean, and, and I'll say the boogeyman just a few years ago used to be common core education. Everyone was afraid of those words. Nobody could explain it. And the same with CRT. We aren't teaching CRT in our K-12 schools. I mean, these are theories that... Um, I definitely have spent a lot of time studying and understanding and, and it, uh, but it isn't something that our school students are going to understand. And teaching a real, I mean, fact-based American history and teaching about some of the wrongdoing that our country has done towards different groups of people that's not CRT, that's American history. And so we really need to understand that CRT is happening, uh, I mean, they're learning about it in law school and graduate schools. Uh, now a lot of workplaces are talking about that systemic racism, you know, and how it impacts decisions in different fields. But it's not in our classrooms. And I wish that uh, people weren't intentionally trying to cause fear. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Deborah Neary, who's running for re-election to the Nebraska State Board of Education. What was your experience like in Nebraska schools? Tell us your story. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Well, that's so much of it. And sometimes, you know, you see something that reminds you of the positive impact that the sort of lasting positive impact that certain teachers can have. Like I just interviewed Kurt Anderson last week and I was rereading his book Fantasyland, which is dedicated to the teachers of District 66 Mm -hmm. because they made such an impact on his curiosity when he was a kid. And I mean, there's so many success stories from Nebraska that Nebraska education probably played some part in. Although those rarely are the ones that are highlighted, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, are there common examples that you sort of see or even in your experience, even though you didn't go to public school, I'm sure there were teachers who made a big impact on you, right? Oh, in a huge way. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I think of Mrs. Wolf. And I have tried from St. James. Mrs. Wolf, if you're out there listening or <laughs> any of your family members from St. James, sixth grade in the, what was I there in the 70s? It's like, I would love to get in touch with her and thank her. Like, she just opened my mind to so many creative ideas. And and I know I, I had a lot of teachers like that, too. But for some reason, she sticks in my mind. And Teachers are doing such innovative things right now. You mentioned Westside. You know, I attended something the other day where they had all these oculuses, and the students were using oculuses to kind of train their brains for a faster response for athletics. You know, I mean, it's there is so much innovation happening, and people are embracing new technology in ways that are going to make our kids more competitive. And that's the kind of stuff that really excites me. Well, our, the public schools in Nebraska are popular, right? People in Nebraska like them, right? 
They are popular. I, they are popular. And as long as we can keep them strong and resourced the way they need to be, then they will continue to be. But you're right. People love their public schools in Nebraska. So what other issues have we not talked about that you want to make sure to highlight? You know, uh, I think you've covered all the controversial ones. <laughs> Are there any non-controversial, fun ones you want to you want to jump into before we wrap up here? No, I you know I I giggle because education has been controversial from the beginning of when we the very first superintendent for Omaha schools was fired from his job because he was too advanced and visionary in his thinking and and. We've always had that. Like, there's always been, you know, those people that, you know, understand the issues and kind of want to move us forward a little bit. But we have to bring everyone along, you know, it's uh, and make sure everyone understands the issues before we can move forward. And and so what you're doing to help spread information instead of disinformation uh, is absolutely key. Uh, to having, you know, really strong schools in our state. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate getting to pick your brain about what's going on both in the culture and also just in the schools themselves. So (laughs) thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. And now here's Jared Charles from the Borough Reviews to talk about David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy, which just released its final installment, Halloween Ends. As Halloween approaches, now is the time to head to the theater for all the spooky movies. And fortunately, we have just the pick for you in David Gordon Green's Halloween Ends. We find ourselves at the end, no pun intended, of a four-year stretch of very divisive collection of films. David Gordon Green's Halloween was well-received upon initial release, with critics applauding the back-to-basics approach and visual flair from cinematographer Michael Simmons, who shot all three films. Not only was John Carpenter and Deborah Hill's shape, played by James Jude Courtney in the latest iteration, scarier than ever, but Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, transcended as a formidable force, something that Green and company continued to capture in both Halloween Kills and the latest and final installment in Blumhouse's trilogy Halloween Ends. For those that are unaware, this particular canon ignores all the other previous sequels besides the original 1978 classic, meaning the familial connection between Strode and Myers doesn't exist. Instead, the filmmakers opt to explore how each force operates independently of one another. Undoubtedly, this has been a consistent point of contention for fans across each of the sequels. From a thematic perspective, however, it has led the creators to find new meaning in how the shape responds to his environment and what motivates him. Part of the fun in the most recent trilogy has been carving into different theories to discover ourselves as an audience, what frightens us most about his presence. Michael Myers has no real interest in Laurie Strode from what we can tell this time around. In fact, it's Strode who constantly obsesses over catching and ultimately killing Michael. However, the whole entire Green trilogy strays away from focusing on what we've come to expect from a Halloween film. Halloween Ends may even be the clearest indication of that truth. People have speculated the how and why of Michael Myers, and the most frightening conclusion to those lingering questions is the simplest one, because he can. Instead, each of these recent films are brief snapshots into the life of a Haddonfield resident. Halloween Ends might be the longest of the three, clocking in at 111 minutes, just shy of two hours, but each are able to achieve their own distinct flavor, 
while 2018 chooses to spend time with Lori as she correctly anticipates Michael's return, Kills infects Haddonfield with Strode's mania when the Boogeyman inevitably resurfaces. Enzo takes a biting left turn in the traditional storytelling structure, which will certainly spark debate among fans, but the most fascinating tale to come of it lies in how Haddonfield morphs into the very evil they've tried to viciously eradicate. Green speaks to the effect Michael has on the community, saying, quote, If we were stepping away from Haddonfield for four years, in between the events of Kills and Ends, I wanted to see that the town had kind of decomposed, to a large degree due to the violence that Michael Myers had brought. While Strode and her granddaughter Allison, played by Andy Matichik, get a significant amount of screen time throughout the film, the framing in Halloween End centers sharply on an outsider with a tragedy of their own. What are the parallels? How do we get back to the original plot of the story? And the short answer is that we don't, at least not with any inclination of predictability. It's an experience that isn't often awarded to fans of decades-long franchises. Rowan Campbell, who plays Corey Cunningham in Halloween Ends, must deliver an alluring, nuanced performance because the entire trajectory of the story depends on it. A bold, creative swing from the whole team. For what it's worth, I do believe that this decision allows for a new perspective on how franchises can be molded into something fresh and exciting, understanding that each film is distinctive in nature and not entirely succinct. There's a messiness to Green's vision that protrudes in various beats, but seldom is it ever boring. As promised, Laurie and Michael share a bloody reunion, not because Michael has some sort of sick fascination with our final girl, but because they are two sides of the same coin. Good versus evil. Cheesy, sure, but it's not just some random thematic thread in Green and Curtis's Halloween DNA. It's the whole construct. Each film cements this truth in their own unique way, but there is a constant that's worth noting, and that's how Laurie drifts around each frame. Simmons captures the pair in the very same absence of light, most prevalently in Halloween Ends. One second she's resting on a chair, and the next she's vanished among the set. In one particular scene, she appears out of broad daylight to conveniently put an end to an altercation that could get violent quickly. In 2018, she famously disappears from Michael's sight after taking a fall out of her second-story window during the film's third-act climax. These moments not only demonstrate a deep respect for the character and her legacy, but propel a convincing argument that she has become somewhat of a shape herself. One particular track in John Carpenter's Halloween End score perfectly encapsulates this transition from a past life to the freak that she has become. The universal polarity triumphs in the narrative shared between Laurie Strode and Michael Myers. Their collision isn't justified by any motive. It's inevitable. And Haddonfield caught in between the collateral damage. Perhaps it's best to go into the final chapter in David Gordon Green's trilogy with an open mind, and even with some bumps in the road, the whole entire story is one that will be worth revisiting in a few years. Grab your closest friends and family and head to the theater one last time for the shapes of Laurie Strode and Michael Myers. Will evil indeed end tonight? Halloween Ends is currently playing in theaters and streaming on Peacock. Riverside Chance is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find a backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. 
As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.